Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam radio station. I'm your host for today, Hala Shah. Here at Sisters on Air, we take the opportunity to discuss a variety of topics relating to women in religion and society. As Muslim women and advocates for women's rights, we consider it our duty to comment on and illuminate the teachings of Islam in relation to women's rights. Needless to say, then, that we simply could not ignore the events that have been unfolding before us in the news most recently. Wherever we turn, women's rights seem to be under threat. The progress towards gender equality is under threat, and most significantly, women's lives are being stolen. But perhaps no place has shed such a stark light on the fragility of women's rights in the autumn of 2021 than Afghanistan, as the Taliban yet again seized control over the country forcing many citizens to flee, including even the then-sitting president, Ashraf Ghani. Nonetheless, the Taliban were surprisingly quick to counteract the sites and narratives of terror that pervaded Afghanistan, particularly upon its female citizens who feared the return of a time when their fundamental rights, such as the right to education, would be curtailed. When a spokesman for the group said at a press conference, we are going to allow women to work and study, it caused much speculation as to whether the group had actually reconsidered its attitude towards women. However, this promise to protect women's rights came with a weighty condition, that such rights could be accorded, quote-unquote, within the framework of Islam. Since then, this statement has pervaded the media and reignited the conversation about the nature of Islamic or Sharia law, particularly with regards to women. An article published by The Conversation in May 2021 gives a feel for what the general perception of Sharia in the non-Muslim community is. The article highlights the fact that the European Court of Human Rights has ruled Sharia law incompatible with human rights. However, research by the author Mark Massoud elucidates that, in fact, more often than not, Muslim women lean on Sharia law to deliver them their rights. He writes, and I quote, Women activists I met saw an inherent feminism in Sharia, a claim that I, as a Muslim woman, may to be true. Yet the actions of groups who manipulate this divine law have shrouded the beauty of Sharia. There is no doubt that in the past as well, the Taliban claimed they were granting women rights within the framework of Islam, but then proceeded to abuse their fundamental human rights as well as their Islamic rights. So are we to believe them now? And if so, what are these frameworks? Do the frameworks of women's rights under the Taliban actually match with the frameworks of women's rights under Islam, or is it that religion and Sharia law are merely being used as a facade for ulterior motives? To answer these questions, in this episode we will be examining the rights afforded to women under Islam by drawing specifically on the words of the Islamic scripture, the Holy Quran, and how they have materialized in the lived experience of Muslim women. Through doing so, we hope to demonstrate to our listeners how Islam does in fact advocate for women's rights and seek to protect women's rights from being abused. We also hope that it will make clear to our listeners that the extremist acts that some groups carry out in the name of Islam are heinous, that their so-called application of Islamic law is done so in a way as to merely satisfy their own political agendas and is thus not to be considered even a reflection of the true meaning and context of the verses from the Holy Quran that they so erroneously cite as sources of justification for their crimes. So without further ado, I would like to turn to my studio guests, Nadia Ghori and Shadia Bhatti. Shadia is a solicitor specialising in immigration, a mother of two and a proactive member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Nadia studied languages and literature at Oxford University, has interned for an NGO and is currently studying a Masters in Political Science at Sewat University. Jazakallah for joining me today. Jazakallah. Jazakallah for having me. Turning then to our discussion on women's rights in Islam, as I'm sure you're both aware, this is such a vast topic that it would not be possible for us to do justice to it in such a short space of time. But I'm nonetheless keen for us to cover as much as possible. So for the sake of clarity, I thought it would be nice for us to structure this discussion by working our way through the various rights that Islam guarantees women beginning with one of the most important and basic rights, in my humble opinion, the right to education. Sadly, data indicates that some of the countries with the worst access to education for girls are Muslim countries, a statistic that is influenced by a variety of other socioeconomic and political factors, 
but that unfortunately often seems to be considered through the lens of religion. So turning to you first, Nadia, I understand that you are doing your postgraduate studies in political science and you also have quite extensive knowledge of Arabic and Arab culture. So could you tell us what Islam says about education and the pursuit of knowledge and how this has impacted your personal view of education and its role in your life and your practice of Islam? Of course. Quite a few questions here, so let's take um, them on one part at a time. To start off with, the pursuit of knowledge for men and women is incredibly important in Islam. You mentioned just now how numerous Muslim countries have some of the worst gender disparities in education, as well as the Taliban's ongoing violations of fundamental human rights. It's something, as you rightly point out, has garnered much media attention. This is dangerous, as it feeds the public psyche a very distorted view of our faith. Indeed, many of the Taliban-related headlines have captured my own attention, particularly how their organization's words and actions are flagrantly in conflict with Islam's teachings. As soon as I heard that the Taliban had banned girls from secondary education, a well-known saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, came to my mind, where he says, Quote, it is the duty of every Muslim man and every Muslim woman to acquire knowledge. This lucidly illustrates that seeking knowledge is not simply a mere recommendation, but something we must do, and it's equally an instructive for women as it is for men. In my early childhood, I also recollect my parents telling me how the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that Muslims should seek knowledge even if they have to go to China. This is especially noteworthy when you think about just how difficult it would have been to travel to China in the seventh century. The world was a very different place back then. The luxuries of cars, trains and planes, which many of us enjoy today, did not exist. China symbolized one of the furthest places in the world to the Arabs. Going there would have entailed a long, costly and arduous journey braving the elements. So from this narration, we ascertain how vital it is to seek knowledge, even in the face of obstacles and hardship. Knowing that Islam has this perspective on education and seeking knowledge, it's even more distressing and frustrating to hear of groups inventing a certain framework of Islam to justify their actions, specifically limiting education and access to it. History presents us with a vast selection of inspiring Muslim women who are well-educated, both in the secular and religious senses. For example, Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, the wife of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was of keen intellect and blessed with a great memory. She was a jurist, scholar and interpreter of the Holy Quran. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, himself stated that half the religion of Islam can be learned through her. In fact, following the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, played an indispensable role in transmitting the knowledge she had acquired from her husband. She narrated more than 2,200 sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, which make up a huge portion of the Islamic books of traditions. Both male and female companions would seek advice from her. Hazrat Aisha's nephew, Urwa bin Zabar, attested to her intellect and role as an educational leader, stating, and I quote, I have never met anyone whose knowledge surpassed Hazrat Aisha's. She was the most scholarly person of her time in the Quran, fundamentals of religion, fiqh, which is the Arabic word for Islamic jurisprudence, poetry, medicine, Arabian history, and genealogy. So this interestingly illustrates the scope of her knowledge, which extended beyond religious matters. Another accomplished personality I'd like to mention is Ashifa al-Adawiyah, a female companion of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Her name, Ashifa, meaning the healer, was a title given to her because of her medical expertise. She also taught women calligraphy, how to read and write, and was appointed to the role of trade secretary in the city of Medina during Hazrat Umar's caliphate. I always find it so uplifting to hear stories about the female companions of the Holy Prophet. 
And it often reaffirms the emphasis that Islam places on teaching and learning in both spiritual and secular fields. And and particularly in awe of the fact that Muslim women at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, were leaders in literacy, which is so fundamental in pursuits of all other kinds of knowledge. What about after the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him? Did the focus on learning and seeking knowledge persist? It did, by the grace of Allah. I mean, whilst discussing Islam and education, it would be impossible not to mention the trailblazing Muslim scholars who paved the way for the European Renaissance during the golden era of the Islamic age. It's something we hear so little about in our schools. I only really learned about them in my university years. Many people don't actually realise that while much of the Western world was intellectually languishing in the aptly labelled Dark Ages, Islamic societies, contrastingly, were flourishing. The international language of learning and science at the time was Arabic. And in this golden era, both male and female scholars were excelling. The world's first university, Al-Qarawiyin, was set up in the 9th century by a lady called Fatima al-Fihri in Morocco. Al-Fihri was a well-educated and pious lady who was determined to build a mosque and learning centre for her community. This then evolved into Morocco's top university. It attracted scholars and students from far and wide, teaching subjects from rhetoric, astronomy, geography, poetry writing to logic and the study of the Holy Quran. This also reminds me of an address delivered a couple of years ago at the Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association by His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, may Allah be his helper. During this, His Holiness expressed his regret at the current intellectual state of the Muslim world. Nonetheless, he articulated his desire for the dawn of a new Islamic golden age of intellectual advancement. Last month, in a virtual meeting with Ahmadi girls aged 7 to 15 from Nigeria, His Holiness gave some guidance, and I quote, that you should try to excel in your studies, and all of you should try to learn as much as you can. Quite clearly then, encouraging the pursuit of knowledge, showing this desire to learn and achieve in young women. So, when confronted with a barrage of headlines portraying Islam in a negative light, where do we turn to in order to learn about and see the true version of Islam? We need look no further than the Ahmadi Muslim community. My views of education have definitely been impacted by my community. Not only was I taught that Islam champions our right to an education, but I saw how this has been practically facilitated. The founder of our, our community, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, himself encouraged Ahmadi Muslim women and girls to acquire secular and religious knowledge and would personally hold religious classes for women. I recently read something about how his daughters, despite having received little formal education, had very enlightened minds and would study extensively themselves. Their nephew, His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, may Allah have mercy on him, commented how whenever he visited them, they had a book in their hand. They would put it down by their side when they spoke, then would pick it up afterwards to continue reading. The second caliph of Ahmadiyya, His Holiness Mirza Bashir Din Mahmud Ahmad, Allah be pleased with him, likewise played a pioneering role in the advancement of Ahmadi women's education. During his caliphate, he set up a girls' school, the Nusrat Jahan Girls' School in Gardian, India, in 1928, and a girls' school in 1951 in Rawa, Pakistan. Considering how these were rural towns, with limited resources and poor transport links, this really opened up a world of opportunities for the local girls. His Holiness had a firm conviction that nations could not progress unless their women were well-educated. His own intellectual prowess and passion to sharpen the skill set of his community were equally demonstrated by his tireless efforts to publish books written in a simple and accessible language. He also instructed for money to be collected in all villages to provide scholarships for outstanding students. These are wonderful examples of Islamic teachings in action. 
My view of education has also been impacted by something I've been witnessing almost every year for as long as I can remember. At our annual convention, the Jalsa Solana, medals are awarded to girls and boys for academic excellence in their secondary and higher education. This tradition was first started by the third head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Nasser Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him. Seeing my fellow Ahmadi sisters go up onto the stage to collect their awards showed me the value of excelling in our studies as a part of my faith and inspired me to work hard myself. Now, I've focused on secular education rather than religious here, mainly because the media will flag up the former more in relation to Muslim women. Nevertheless, worldly education supplements our spiritual pursuits and vice versa. From my own experience, it's this spirit of inquiry which Islam instills in us that widens our perspectives of the world, develops an appreciation for divine blessings, and strengthens our relationship with God. I was very blessed to have been able to entwine my spiritual and secular interests by the grace of God in my undergraduate studies of Arabic. Honestly, I could probably go on and on about Islam and education, but unfortunately time does not permit it. Instead, I would encourage anyone who may have any kind of reservations about Islam to have an open mind and to independently research Islam. Reviewofreligions.org is a good starting point. Thank you, Nadia, for not only sharing your personal experience with education as an Ahmadi Muslim woman, but also for sharing some really inspiring ideals about education from Islamic history. I know you brought up the academic awards, but what I really picked up on from everything that you said is that in Islam, education is not the sort of arbitrary attaining of certificates or awards. It is more about the pursuit of knowledge and establishing a culture of learning for the sake of improving ourselves and as a means to drive our service to mankind, not simply as a goalpost. So your point about how secular learning can feed spiritual development and vice versa really, really resonates with me. Turning then to Shazia, I'd like to come to you next. As a professional, I imagine that education must have been vital in paving your path to becoming a practicing lawyer. And as Nadia has explained, Islam itself has not only placed any restrictions on women seeking education, but rather has encouraged us to do so. That said, could you explain some of the other reasons why girls' access to education has been so restricted in a number of countries around the world? I think living in the UK and having access to education is a privilege, but it's something that many of us don't even think of as such because we don't know any different. For me, I had never thought that I wouldn't be educated. It was just expected and something that would just happen. And I think that only later on growing up and knowing that for how many girls education is not even an option I've realised how lucky I am to be born into an Ahmadi Muslim family where education is seen as so important. By the grace of God, my parents wanted their daughters to be as educated as their sons, as per Islamic teachings. And just as Nadia said, my own view of education and the path of the academia that I chose for myself was influenced by my religion. In fact, the fourth head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on him, was instrumental in what I was to study and why I became a lawyer. And it shows the importance that our spiritual leaders give to the education of the girls in our community and how we are so lucky that this is the case. Now to your question about other factors that would prevent or restrict young girls in education, one of the biggest culprits of this is poverty. We know in many impoverished communities, many women and girls are married when they're quite young. And this means that they don't have the opportunities that I and other women like myself had to be educated. When girls are married very young, duty and responsibility to family are given precedence and young girls and women have limited opportunity to complete their education. Child marriage is prevalent in communities where poverty is widespread, birth and death rates are high and access to education and healthcare is low. Where there is so much poverty and there are large families, there is less chance for families and parents to be able to educate their children and in particular their daughters. Some families in these very dire situations may decide to ensure that their girls are married very young as a strategy for short-time financial security, often taking place in exchange for goods or resources that support the survival of other family members. Girls from the poorest households are at greater risk of becoming child brides, which means they do not get to complete their education. 
and in turn the same is true for their children and this system is perpetuated through generations. Moreover, natural disasters and armed conflict increases chances of sexual violence against women and therefore families believe that the girls will be the safest if they are married. For example, the rates of child marriage amongst Syrian refugees in Jordan has doubled since the war in Syria began. Many girls who do get married do not return to their education after marriage due to the expense, lack of childcare and the inflexibility of schools and their family responsibilities. I also believe that women do not know their rights which have been given by Allah and their lack of education, not only secular but religious, means they can't take their rights which are given by Allah. And if these girls were to know what their rights are, as Allah has given them, and as per the information that Nadia has given us, they would be in a much better position to be educated. And if they are educated, then they are more likely to educate their own daughters. I think also, in some communities, misogyny plays a part in the fact that women are kept downtrodden by refusing to allow them to be educated. And we are extremely lucky that we are in a community that encourages women to be educated. I completely agree, Shadia. And from what you've just explained, it seems as though this issue has two main levels, one being systemic and one being individualised. The systemic issues that limit girls' education appear to stem from socioeconomic status and intergenerational misogyny that refuses to prioritise girls' education. Meanwhile, on the other hand, at the individual level, many girls and women are unaware of the right to education that is granted to them by Islam, and both of these have a devastating impact on women's education. However, it is clear that any restrictions to girls' education does not come from within religion. So leading on from this, another highly contentious point that has been at the forefront of the media not least because of the events unfolding in Afghanistan, has been that of economic rights. Now, as I am sure you're both aware, on the economic front, Islam entitles women to possess money, property, and other assets. But what many people don't know is that under Islamic law, women are actually afforded rights, which many countries championing modernity and gender equality have not yet enshrined in law. Could you please elaborate on this further for us, Shazia? What rights and economic freedoms are granted to women by Islam and how do they serve to benefit women? I mean, this sort of allegation is such a shame. There are so many rights given to women by Islam that sadly many non-Muslims and even some Muslim women do not know about. As a fundamental point, Islam teaches that in a peaceful society, everyone's rights must be given to them, but they also have a rule and duty that they must exercise. In one tradition, it is narrated that at the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, a woman spoke up about some matter and was silenced, and she said the days of silencing women were over, as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had himself said that women should be consulted in some matters. So this woman understood that times had changed and that the time had come for women to be able to get their rights, and because she knew her rights, she could speak up. Another allegation is about forced marriage, and Islam has in fact forbidden forced marriage. Yes, in Islam there is not a system of dating, and often parents and other family members are involved in presenting a proposal for marriage, but no one should be forced into marriage. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, is reported to have said, The widow shall not be married until she is consulted, and the virgin shall not be married until her consent is obtained. Now, you might be wondering why you asked me about the economic rights and I'm talking about marriage. I think one of the more misunderstood practices that causes people to question the women's economic rights and indeed autonomy is that of the hakmer or dowry that is granted to women by their husbands at the time of marriage. People who do not understand the dowry system believe that it's a system where a woman is bought from her family. This is not the Islamic system of dowry. In Islam, the husband must give his wife a dowry, that is her money, for her to use as she wishes. The dowry is given as an acknowledgement of her role which she has taken as a wife. Now. If we consider this in the context of the Arabian desert 1400 years ago, this is a huge stride towards women's economic rights and independence. At the time of marriage, women are given a certain level of wealth, granting financial independence that they may previously not have had access to. And wives who do work are granted full freedom to continue their employment and complete control over their own finances. Both the institution of mandatory dowry as well as the rights that women have over their finances granted women financial and social security in a time and place where this was not considered an ideal that was ever considered. In addition to this, the Islamic economic system was actually the first religion to give women their rights of inheritance. 
In the Holy Quran, a daughter is given rights of inheritance from their parents, wives have a right of inheritance from their husbands, and even mothers have a right of inheritance from their children. And in the same way, if a wife is working, her income is her own, and she does not have to be used for family expenses. However, the husband's income has to be used to support the family. But in the UK, it was only in 1882 that married women were allowed to own and control their property. Before this, as soon as a woman married, her property became the property of her husband. And as we know, as our Muslims know, that this was not the case in Islam from the very beginning of Islam. Thank you for that, Shadia, for that very unique perspective. And just to add to the last point that you raised, that until recent history, married women were considered the property of their husbands. And I think this links back to the Islamic system of Jari that you mentioned. It can be easy to misunderstand the giving of Jari because for so long the norm in this country was that women were regarded as property. But as you've explained, Jari is not about the man owning the woman. Rather, it is about granting the women opportunity and security. Relating quite closely to this topic of economic rights, I think it would be remiss of us not to also touch on the topic of social rights, which again I think is quite interesting to discuss from a comparative lens. A key point that has been at the forefront of discussion specifically because of the recent changes in lifestyle due to many of us living in lockdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic is that of the domestic responsibilities on women in comparison to men. Now, there was a lot of research done this past year, especially into the average amount of time spent on unpaid domestic and care work done by women in comparison to men. And I'm sure you must have read something in the news relating to this. For example, UN Women reported data from 38 countries confirming that women were taking on a greater intensity of care-related tasks than men. Interestingly, in one scenario, a Chinese divorce court ordered a man to compensate his wife for the childcare and housework she did during their five-year marriage. So altogether, situations such as the pandemic and some rather unique ones, such as the one I've just mentioned, have sparked a huge debate over how we should put a value on unpaid work. Domestic roles in Islam are quite explicit, with some being given to women and others being given to men. However, the value of these roles has never been diminished by Islam, and particularly with regards to the role of women in the home as mothers and wives, a great deal of honour has been afforded to women who fulfil these roles. So what does Islam say about the domestic responsibilities that women should hold and the immense value that these have for women, specifically as a means through which women can claim their rights? Nadia? So when it comes to social and domestic roles, it's worth noting that Islam ascribes men and women roles according to their dispositions and physiologies. This benefits the family unit as well as wider society. The idea of women's domestic roles have become a bit of a hot potato recently, with the rise of certain ideologies arguing what women should and shouldn't be doing to be supposedly truly free and equal. We have to take into account, though, that females alone have the unique ability to bear children and feed them biologically. They're different to men. Why else is it that in sports matches, let's say, we won't see a female tennis player against a male tennis player? or a mixed 100-metre race at the Olympics. Islam has perceptively catered to these differences to maximise both individual and collective prosperity. One of my A-level psychology modules comes to mind during which I learned about the evolutionary traits of men and women. According to psychologists, these traits have enabled the survival of the entire human race throughout the ages. That's quite an incredible idea. Can you tell us more about it? Of course. Studies indicate that during a baby's development in the womb, the male hormone testosterone has a masculinizing effect on the brain. It's associated particularly with the development of visuospatial abilities, competitiveness and aggression. Meanwhile, oestrogen, the female hormone, has been found to feminize the brain. Women also produce more oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, which helps reduce stress. It's produced in large quantities during labour, which then facilitates bonding between a mother and her baby. From an evolutionary perspective, at least, the protective qualities of a masculinised brain, coupled with the nurturing qualities of the feminised brain, have ensured the survival of Homo sapien, or human offspring. So it's clear there are some things that the female sex is more biologically wired to do. Likewise for males both of which are necessary for human prosperity. 
In view of these differences, and the ultimate goal of establishing a peaceful and prosperous society, Islam has assigned different domestic roles. Females are expected to have a more central role in the upbringing of their children, while men are given the responsibility to be the breadwinners, the providers. What does this entail then? Providing for their wife's needs, from shelter to food to their well-being. This lessens the burden for women. Men are also taught to care for their wives with kindness and love. However, it should be remembered that these roles are not totalitarian. They don't encourage the locking up of women, nor do they absolve men from participating in the home. Women, as Shazia mentioned, have every right to work, earn their own money and manage their own finances as they see fit and in order to do so. Islam has embedded laws that prohibit men from staking any claim on their wife's income or estate. And if she does contribute financially to the household in any way, this should be considered a favour. Personally, I'd say this is a pretty good deal for Muslim women. Islam doesn't forbid a woman from going out to work and being of benefit to society. And we have proof of this in the studio today. Sister Shazia is an accomplished lawyer and doing some amazing work to help those less fortunate than us, mashallah. Now, going back to the case you mentioned, Kola, where a man where a man had to compensate his wife for childcare and housework, I was genuinely surprised that the wife felt she had to be paid to do this. Are these actions not done out of love and affection for one's children? In an address in 2017, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, stated, quote, Looking after your homes and caring for and raising your children is of profound importance and of priceless value. I think that's a really poignant point you just made about the case study, and it's a true testament to our character as women. And also what a beautiful and uplifting quote from His Holiness. And I know I mentioned earlier that there is a shift in how society looks at domestic roles and responsibilities, but our culture is still very focused on praising career women and mothers who continue to work whilst Mothers who do choose to spend their lives not working, or even a period of their lives not working, raising their children instead and taking care of the home full-time, are not revered in the same way. And sadly, in some cases, they are even looked down upon or pitied. So I think to hear that the work of housewives and mothers are priceless is so empowering for women. It truly means that we as women can choose to work or choose not to, and both choices, like you said, are given value and validity by Islam. Definitely. And I'm really struck by the use of the word priceless. This is exactly why the idea of monetary compensation, I feel, diminishes the worth of these domestic roles. What His Holiness is indicating here is that the legacy of fulfilling these domestic duties is so great that they cannot have a price put on them. Islam recognises that women are nation builders and that their children are the future backbone of our society. Without them, society cannot thrive. Caring for one's children and cultivating a warm, loving and religious home environment is an investment in the future. It's a shame that capitalistic forces in society have shifted the focus from moral values to money. Unlike Islam, materialistic and individualistic societies seem to be neglecting the different capacities of men and women and the roles that are best suited to them. Just as there is undeniable beauty in the natural world, there is beauty in the natural order of our species. Domestic peace and harmony are the guarantors for the peace of our communities. Islam teaches that mothers can reap manifold blessings nurturing their children, both spiritually and morally. So it's always regrettable to hear of women being patronizingly labeled as passive or as being wasted when they stay at home. It requires a lot of care and attention, and I'm sure many will have realised this having to supervise and homeschool during the lockdowns. From certain narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, we know that fulfilling one's roles within the home is a form of jihad, which means to strive or to struggle, and is a means of reforming the self. This was a time when a lot of men were going out to war to participate in battles. And though there were women also fighting or taking on other roles on the battlefield, there were many women who were left at home. Nonetheless, 
The Prophet, peace be upon him, said that women could attain the same rewards. At the same time, the Holy Quran instructs sons and daughters to respect and care for their parents because of the sacrifices they made for them when they were young. The sacrifices are definitely huge. When I used to work part-time in a nursery, I gained just a small insight into how much attention and energy children demand. <laughs> Thank you, Nadia. I expect, actually, that a number of listeners might be surprised to hear that taking care of the home is considered jihad, that making breakfast or doing laundry or reminding your children about good manners is all jihad, because this word has so often erroneously been used to describe acts of violence that its true meaning has become tainted, which, as you explained, is simply to strive and even struggle to better oneself. And may I add, you are absolutely right. Efforts to fulfill the responsibilities that Allah has placed on us, whether it be in our home or serving our community, it is all jihad. So we've spoken about how Islam seeks to elevate the status of women through various roles and responsibilities. But what would you say to those who might still argue that men and women are not equal in Islam? Of course, gender equality is a debate that transcends religious debate and continues to pervade almost every aspect of secular society. I asked my guests then, are men and women equal in Islam? I'll turn to you first, Nadia, because you have quite a sound understanding of Arabic, so I was hoping you might be able to expand on the verse in the Holy Quran found in Surah Nisa, verse 2, where it states, and I quote, O you people, fear your Lord who created you from a single being and created therefrom its mate, and from the two spread many men and women, and fear Allah in whose name you appeal to one another, and fear him particularly respecting ties of relationship. Verily, Allah watches over you. This is a very interesting verse at the start of the chapter on Nisa. It chiefly deals with the rights of women and their position in society. Its importance is exemplified by its inclusion in the nikah ceremony, that is, the Islamic announcement of marriage. This is a tradition that has been preserved since the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The phrase single being or soul underlines how men and women can be spoken of as one unit because of how they jointly perform one function. Moreover, it shows that we have the same origin as men. Therefore, women should not be treated as inferior. The verse continues, and created therefrom its mate. This doesn't mean that woman was created from man. Rather, she belongs to the same kind of species of man, thereby possessing the same nature and propensities. There's nothing in the Holy Quran to indicate that Eve was created from a rib of Adam as is widely believed in Christianity and as well by some Muslims. We know this because the Arabic word zoj, which is translated in this verse as mate, actually means two things of the same kind, spouse or a mate. It doesn't mean a wife specifically. For this specificity, we'd expect to see zoja. Zoj can be either. The Holy Quran has stated in a later chapter we have created you in pairs, and this confirms that God has created a mate for every living thing. Therefore, in complete accordance with this natural law, God had no need to make a female partner for Adam from Adam's body. Rather, God created a female mate as he has done so for other living creatures, a mate that is equal and has her own agency, not a mate that was created from man for purposes of servitude. Now another meaning of this verse is that men and women have been created for a mutual objective, highlighting their equality. As such, husbands and wives both should seek this mutual objective, an aspect of which entails creating peace in society after forming their new relationship. That's a really interesting and important nuance of the etymology of this verse you picked up there, Nadia Jazakala. And just to be clear, this objective in the Holy Quran is stated as being to establish the truth of the unity of God and to practice the divine law set out by him. Yeah, exactly. And it's on both men and women in equal measure to fulfil this purpose. Now, returning to the term gender equality, how do we define it? Simply put, treating male and female in the exact same manner. However, it could be argued that giving everyone the same treatment is problematic, as this assumes everyone is identical with identical needs. 
Although this is just a personal opinion, I think equity might actually be a more nuanced and appropriate term instead of equality. Equity recognises that people's needs differ and by extension that different people benefit from different kinds of treatment. None of us are the same, so arguably we should not be treated identically. The term gender equity has a greater sense of fairness and justice, accounting for the different needs and dispositions of males and females. So although Islam doesn't always treat the two sexes identically, it is always fair at the very minimum. It's interesting that you say fairness is the minimum standard of treatment of women in Islam. And I think I have a sound understanding of what you mean, but could you please elaborate on this further for our audience a little more? Is fairness not the ultimate standard? Well, I believe our treatment in Islam, the respect we are given and the safeguarding of our rights makes us feel like queens. Beyond arbitrary fairness, Islam takes care of women. In fact, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, himself said that in Islam, it's as though women have been placed on thrones. I'd also like to add that when it comes to our intellectual and spiritual capacities, we can, in this case, say we are identical. In chapter 4, verse 125, the Holy Quran, which we believe to be God's word, states, But whoso does good works, whether male or female, and is a believer, such shall enter heaven, and shall not be wronged, even as much as the little hollow in the back of a date stone. Thank you, Nadia, for delving into that verse from Surah Nisa for us, and that other very important verse from the Holy Quran as well. Now, Shazia, I turn to you with yet another pertinent reminder in the Holy Quran about the morality and piety expected from both women and men in Islam. In Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 188, the Holy Quran states, They are a garment for you, and you are a garment for them. And further in chapter 7, verse 27, it states, O children of Adam, we have indeed sent down to you raiment to cover your shame, and to be an elegant dress, but the raiment of righteousness, that is the best. That is one of the signs of Allah that they may remember. Could you please explain the meaning of these verses to us, especially the use of the word garment? Yes, of course. Now, to start with, the Arabic word libas, which is used in both verses you read out, but in one instance it is translated as garment, and in another it's translated as raiment, which actually means a thing which covers another. The nature of this term can be elaborated on by looking at other contexts in the Holy Quran where it's been used. For example, the word libas is used in Surah Al-Nahl, verse 82, where in the Holy Quran it states, and I quote, And Allah has made for you of that which he has created, things offering shade, and he has made for you in the mountains places of shelter, and he has made for you garments which protect you from heat, and coats of mail which protect you in wars. Thus does he complete his favour on you, that you may submit to him. So from this context we can understand that the term libas or something which covers can be to cover nakedness, to be adorned with, to protect from heat and other weather conditions. And a common theme that we see is that libas is a sort of protection or shelter from parts of the world that could cause us harm. Now if we turn back to today's topic of gender equality, I think the concept of a husband and wife being garments for each other is so important and profound. I think it destroys the notion that women should be looked down on as an inferior. Instead, it emphasised the idea that the couple should be friends and work together for a better life. And so again, this shows the equality in the relationship. And I think this term has three meanings. Firstly, that a husband and wife should cover up each other's weakness and shortcomings from others. Second, to act as an adornment and an embellishment for one another. And I think this means that together a husband and wife make each other better. And thirdly, just as clothes protect us from the severity of weather, so in the same way the husband and wife should stick to each other through thick and thin and should not fall apart in adverse circumstances. For me, it's that my husband is the person you go to if you're scared or stressed or upset. It means you're working together for the betterment of your family. I mean, the relationship of a husband and wife should be like that of two friends. And the first witness of a man's moral conduct is his wife. And Islam teaches us that the best among the people is the one who is best to his wife. Yes, this is found in the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And 
I realise that our culture has now started to move more towards relationships being an equal partnership, but again, it was not too long ago that women in marriages were afforded less rights and less say over how their households was run, whereas Islam in such a beautiful way embeds the idea of an equal and comforting partnership between men and women. Yes, that bond of friendship and mutual respect is really ingrained in the Islamic marriage institution. His Holiness, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Mirza Masrur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, has said that a true friendship is a strong bond between two people. Hence, the same relationship should be established between a husband and his wife. Further to this, in an anthology of an address by His Holiness titled Garments for Each Other, His Holiness comments on the second verse that you introduce, Hola, that which mentioned the raiment of righteousness, where he says, and I quote, when husbands and wife who are garments to each other instill taqwa in their mutual relationship in front of society. Life has its ups and downs, and relationships go through various stages. There can be hardships, but there's also friendship. However, a true believer does not exploit his friend's confidentiality at times of mutual differences. Neither do married couples who have taqwa divulge private information about each other. Rather, for the sake of attaining Allah's pleasure, they are always discreet. So this is a garment of righteousness which not only covers physical appearance but also covers up the faults and shortcomings of others. Hence the word taqwa. Here the word taqwa means righteousness. Relating to this topic of the relationship between a husband and a wife is a point which we couldn't possibly forget to discuss in this episode relating to women's rights, that of marital rights in Islam as you have touched briefly on Shazia. We describe the relationship as being the labas a source of comfort, protection and friendship. Yet often this is not how Islamic marriage is portrayed. And sadly this is because of the number of reports that pervade the media about child and forced marriage. I would like to ask Nadia to please speak about this further and hopefully dispel the misconceptions that sadly we are all too familiar with. And I know that during this episode we've talked about the economic rights of women in marriage as well as the treatment we are entitled to but I would like us to explore this idea of forced marriage to uncover its role or lack thereof in Islam. So what are the actual teachings of Islam relating to women's marital rights and right to choose who she marries? Well, firstly, it should be firmly stated that forced marriages have absolutely no place in Islam. In fact, any marriage that is forced is considered null and void. I think false perceptions arise because forced marriages and arranged marriages are often conflated with one another. This is something I've noticed firsthand from my interactions with friends and classmates. Both at secondary and university, my peers began entering and ending relationships. As a practicing Muslim, I didn't, so naturally I was asked about my views on dating, marriage, etc. Many people, I realised, have misconceptions concerning arranged marriages, so I'd always emphasise that they are distinct from forced marriages. The latter have no place in Islam. No girl should be forced into a marriage. Cultural practices must be distinguished from religious here. To illustrate this point, I'd like to share a few examples from the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Once, during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, a father suggested a marriage proposal for his daughter. The daughter didn't like the proposal, so she rejected him. The matter was brought before the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who then explained that the marriage proposal would be arranged according to the young woman's preference. In another tradition that Shazia mentioned earlier, but worth repeating, it's narrated that the Holy Prophet of Islam said, The widow shall not be married until she is consulted, and the virgin shall not be married until her consent is obtained. This speaks volumes about the importance of a girl's consent when she is choosing her life partner. I completely agree. Thank you for sharing those examples, Nadia and Shazia. Issues around consent are quite a prominent conversation at the moment, so I thought it was important to bring that to the fore, that consent in Islam is necessary for a marriage to be considered legal and a distinct point is made to obtain this consent from both men and women in no uncertain terms at the time of marriage. So we have covered a broad range of topics in today's episode of Sisters on Air with the aim of giving listeners a brief overview of some of the rights granted to women by Islam and have touched on the benefit and impact of these rights. 
To end our episode today, then, I wanted to share an excerpt from an address delivered by His Holiness, Mirza Nasrur Ahmed, at the Ladies' Annual Convention of Germany in 2016. His Holiness said, and I quote, Today there is much debate in the world concerning the rights of men and women. Whereas people are hugely expressive regarding these rights, the fact is overlooked by the world that there should be certain boundaries assigned to them. There is a need to classify where the distinction lies between men and women as humans in their physical and innate capabilities and faculties. Where should there be uniformity in the rights of men and women, and where should variances in their rights be made due to their different constitution? And why differentiate between the rights of men and women in that case? Is it to establish the superiority of men? Is it to make women feel that they are weaker species? Is it to take an unjust advantage of women? If the rights of men and women are established on such a basis, then that would most certainly be an injustice and cruelty against women. Secular people have only today in the current times raised a voice supporting the rights of women, whereas Islam raised its voice 1400 years ago against the cruelty and injustices against women. However, a Muslim woman can never say that women's rights organizations have played any role in aiding her liberation, her freedom and her rights. In the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty has given Muslims certain teachings and has established the rights of every classification and grouping of people in minute detail. Nobody can match these teachings, neither any law, government, nor any lawmaker. Neither has any constitution, nor anyone else ever perceived this issue in the manner that the Holy Quran and Islam have. Islam is a religion based on human nature that assigns rights according to the intrinsic disposition of man and woman according to their respective capabilities. We can explain this in the following way, that just as Allah Almighty has divided humankind into two categories of men and women, he has similarly divided their responsibilities into two categories. Therefore, the establishment of rights in Islam is naturally done with consideration of these differences. So, just as we have today, Sisters on Earth will continue to explore issues relating to women's rights in both religion and society. Thank you again to today's guests, Nadia and Shazia, for joining me today. This has been Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio, produced by Mrs. Shamin Butt and Dor Shwar Anwar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.